Hello, ladies and gentlemen, this is Walter Poppy, your host of the Go to Market podcast, where we break down go to market strategies and tactics with founders, revenue operators, and investors to get actual insights to make your go to market plans faster and more predictable. Five, four, three, two, one, zero, all engine running. Liftoff, we have a liftoff. Patrick, welcome to the show. Yeah, happy to be here, man. Happy to, to jam. Glad we could finally get it scheduled. Yeah, I'm really looking forward to this. Uh, you're doing some really great stuff in the uh, your different place from your podcast to your blog to your YouTube channel. So super excited to have you on the show today. Um, for those of us who have not heard of you or have met you, how would you introduce yourself at parties? And what do you tell people what you do? <laughs> Yeah, how it <laughs> this is actually a really interesting question. Normally I say I work in software. Uh I've always I, I had a, a or I have a advisor slash mentor who was always frustrated with that because he's like, just say you're a CEO, say you're a CEO. Um, but I was always like, Oh, I work in software, because I always felt weird being like, Well, I'm the CEO, because especially when it's like a small, it's just you and you're just trying to figure stuff out, it feels like that random guy or gal who just switched their LinkedIn, you know, yeah. title and you know, they're not they're not really fulfilling that uh that that actual moniker. But uh yeah, so normally I say, Oh, I work in software, um, if I'm talking about my job, but you know, that type of thing. I mean the second question is what what was it again? Yeah, like what do you what do you tell people what you do? So you work in software, okay. and then they say, "Oh, what do you do in software?" Yeah, and then I say, "Like, oh, I work at a company that does, um, you know, subscription revenue automation." We now have the the idea, and I basically say, "Like, you know, you have subscription company or use subscription products like either Netflix or um, you might use some at your work, and basically we help those companies with their pricing and their retention, and help them, you know, stop cancellations and um, optimize their pricing more." Um, and normally that ends up being like, oh, so if they, they charge me more, that's your fault. And I go, yep, it's our fault. <laughs> yes. Yeah. So you're, you're welcome for keeping that Netflix subscription and watching more Queen's Gambit. So you're welcome. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, no, absolutely. Okay. So, so the, the humble of not bringing up being the CEO and doing those things, is that by nature who you are, or is that more just. Like, or is it more like like the imposter syndrome of like coming from a place of that's not really what you want to dive into? Yeah, it's a good question. I think for me, it started. It's a really good question. Good introspective question. I think so. At like kind of a standard story, but I definitely was part of the standard. Was like, you know, incredibly insecure um, growing up as a kid. These types of things, and so you kind of. I was the overcompensating insecure kid, probably like parts of high school, parts of college, and I had like really good mentorship in college that kind of beat the crap out of me with that. Uh, and so, um, it was one of those things where I kind of like still had some of that, you know, leaving college and getting into the workforce, but then you know, started kind of like, you know, like broadening my horizons to the point where I was like, kind of embarrassed about my immaturity of, you know, kind of overcompensating insecurity, and then right. kind of overcompensated even further on that to the point of like, not, not like being like, I'm awesome, you know, I'm the CEO, that kind of a thing. Right. So I think, yeah, um, yeah. I think part of it is humility. I think part of it's also like a signaling thing of like, um, hey, I don't, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm not trying to, uh, you know, demand a conversation or overtake a conversation unless it like leads to that if that makes sense because inevitably yeah, people will be yeah, like 
oh, cool. But like, what do you actually do? And I'll be like, oh, well, I, I am the founder and CEO and like, I'll go from there. And so like, I've been, you know, it's kind of everything. Right. So, yeah. um, yeah, it's interesting. It's an interesting question. Right. Cause like, I don't think I do it because I'm just like humble, um, necessarily by design. It's more because I tried to work on my humility or try to work on my authenticity. And, um, so maybe that makes it actually not humble in and of itself, but that's a, that, that's for an existential conversation. Later. Oh yeah. That's a, yeah, that's a whole nother conversation that I don't think this show is going to be about. So, uh, that's okay. That'll be the yeah. second show you do. Yeah. Ooh, maybe, maybe. And then I'll reach out to you and let you, uh, we'll find out more about this existential crisis and we'll talk about it. Yeah, totally. Yeah. <laughs> awesome. Um, so with that being said, uh, you mentioned that ProfitWell focuses on revenue subscription and automation. Um, once you kind of found that product market fit, can you give us kind of the framework and levers that you leverage to really accelerate your growth and really start taking things to scale? Yeah. So it's, it's kind of funny, like the classic product market fit question. It, it's kind of the, uh, what's that Supreme court decision around porn. It's like, it's really hard to define, but you kind of know it when you see it. And yeah. our, our problem has been because we're multi-product and we chose to be multi-product early in our life cycle, we have different products at different stages. Um, and oh, interesting. We're doing this like super reactively and now we're being a lot more proactive about it. So, so, to, so, kind of with our, our pricing product, um, we started getting to product market fit like relatively quickly, um, mainly because it was just such a void. And that gave us mm -hmm. almost a false sense of product market fit in some cases, because there was, there was just, there was no other solution except really expensive consultants. And so we provided like more software and data and like not, you know, not the same price. And so that kind of like created this like good momentum. Um, and then it's evolved and we had to kind of almost like attack our own product market fit, meaning like, mm -hmm. okay, we need to like not get excited about this momentum. We need to figure out like the, the future. And then our metrics products, you know, we, we got to product market fit after like we started getting more and more referrals and things. And then our retention product, it was basically like when we were able to like really start scaling revenue. So yeah, long story short, um, we, what was the core question again? Sorry. Yeah. Yeah. No, 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 no. I, I think it's good to kind of give this, uh, the framework or a context of, yeah. of, of everything of like, what is market market fit and like where you're at with different products. So within like those three different examples you just gave, like yeah. what is like kind of like the levers that you knew that, Hey, it's time for us to go scale. And like, this is like yep. what we're going to do to really kind of grow revenue. Got and then it. what was some of the frameworks that you use to identify those levers? Totally. Yeah. So this is, yeah, my, my short term memory must be off. Cause as soon as you started saying that, I was like, Oh yeah, that was the question. But, um, basically <laughs> what we started doing, um, we, we, I think a lot of people in hindsight go, oh, well, like, I just knew, like, this is what we needed to do. And these are the levers we go after. And like, for us, yeah. it was a matter of like path of least resistance. And then also a matter of like, oh, that's working. Let's just double down on it, which I think is like how some of this stuff organically comes in the early stages. So for us, we, we started, we had a free HubSpot account. And mm -hmm. it was like, oh, this like inbound marketing something seems to be a thing. And I didn't know anything about inbound marketing um, really until I jumped into the startup world. Um, and even then when I started blogging, I didn't really know like all the context of it. Right. And so we, we got lucky in the sense of the spaces that we're in pricing and retention, like 
we could publish stuff on it and it would go like B2B viral, I call it like, you know, hundreds, if not thousands of views, not like mega views, but basically it would go in that direction because it was something that we were providing more like how to, or like practical information um, around things that people didn't know a lot about and people were craving that information. So um, in hindsight and kind of in terms of the framework, we started like basically setting things up in a way that, um, we're like, okay, so inbound marketing is going to be the thing for us because, and to kind of give a little more context, our biggest problem and the reason we're multi-product is, is we have a limited number of logos in our market. There's about 150,000 total subscription companies. The revenue on those subscription companies is astronomical. We can build awesome products for a market, but when you're in that type of market, brand and content are so important and also sales, right? So these are our two major levers is content and sales. And what we kind of discovered um, when we started building like a proper marketing team um, about three, three and a half years ago, um, we kind of sat down and we started looking at what was happening with inbound and, and what was happening with like the numbers in the sense of, oh, um, you know, the effectiveness of ebooks started to go down. The effectiveness mm-hmm. of SEO was still always there, but it wasn't like as good as it used to be. And so we started um you know, kind of developing this new framework around what, what's now called inbound media. Um, and mm-hmm. we basically were like, oh, what are the best companies in the world at developing and driving traffic? Their media companies are the worst at monetizing traffic and SaaS and software companies are amazing at monetizing traffic. And so that was like the central thesis. And there's a bunch of data that, that we collected and figured this out um, a while back because we were so interested in leverage as a bootstrapped company. Um, right. And the sales story is kind of boring. Like, it's classic inside sales, like BDRs, AEs. We're really clever with some of our, our the ways that we do this um, that gives us like increased yield. But um, in, in terms of go to market, in terms of scale, like those are the two things that we've really latched onto. And then everything else kind of supports those things. So demand gen is supporting content and supporting sales. It's not like a separate thing. Um, you know, as is like, you know, our growth team, our growth team kind of works within these two big pulleys and levers um, and, and works to increase yield and also works to increase spread, basically. So a uh, little rambly, but hopefully that helps. Oh, no, no, it, it, don't don't like ramble on. This is long format. And the whole point is to allow you to expand on those different things. Uh, actually, on your inbound market uh, media or inbound uh, marketing, uh, inbound media. Nice thing about doing podcasts is you can always edit later on. So that's the yeah. nice part. Um, so I, I actually came across your that that podcast and the blog talking about how three years ago you identified how this was going to be the direction that companies should, should go uh, around different things, especially around the hustle uh, being purchased by HubSpot to kind of create awareness and grab people's attention. So with that being said, Kind of dive a little bit more on just a little bit of context of your like current like inbound media strategy. And then where do you kind of foresee this going if this becomes more popular that everyone just starts copying each other? Yeah. So the, the basic idea, and I already set some of this up, was that if, if, if you think about inbound marketing, and I'm going to generalize just for speed here, but like inbound marketing at its core the whole idea is let me provide you some sort of value in terms of information and then um, drive you to an offer, typically an ebook, a white paper, things like that. And then based on that information, I get your email address, some qualification takes place and I pass you to sales in some way, right? 
the problem there is that the effectiveness, if you think about just like the physics or the first principles of that situation, it depends on you being really, really good at giving me something valuable or something that entices me and me finding that information either through SEO, social, uh, email, if I'm on some email list and it gets forwarded to me, et cetera. And then also the effectiveness of the offer. So in inbound, traditional inbound marketing, you're, you're a, you need to be a hit maker. It wasn't always like this. Mm. It used to be like, you just throw like a PDF of the blog post out there and all of a sudden like you get a bunch of downloads, right? Right. So now it's like, you have to be a bit of a hit maker in order for people to be like, holy cow, I need this. I want to forward it to my friends, et cetera. Um, mm -hmm. I don't know about you, but like being a hit maker is really hard, right? Like, oh, so hard. So, so hard. Like, you know, yeah. you have episodes of this, this show where all of a sudden it's like, you know, it, all of a sudden one goes crazy. You have no idea why so many people are downloading, right? And then you have right. a show that you're just like, that's, I'm so, this is such a good show. People are going to love it. And it tanks, right? Mm -hmm. and it's because like, even with, you know, the rise of AI content and all this other crazy stuff, it's still like, there's like taste and human interest is so hard. So mm -hmm. long story short, like the the physics or the the math of inbound marketing basically created like SEO shops, right? So mm -hmm. we do a lot of this type of content, but it's very SEO focused. It's very like intent and in, in, in search focused. But when you look at a media company, their whole idea is how do I get you and how do I keep you? And how do I keep you coming back, right? It's not about mm -hmm. downloading something and going to a sales process. It's a very, very different idea where you're trying to build audience. And so that could be kind of um, you know, newsletter focused. So the skim was one of the first really big newsletters where they were kind of taking advantage of like, my goal is to have you open that email that I send at like four to five times a week, right? Mm -hmm. I'm going to seven, seven days a week. Anything under three or four times is failure, right? And that's a very different mindset, right? Bloomberg wants me to show up or click through an email every single day. They want me to hit Bloomberg.com in, in, in the, the search bar. Um, and it's different, right? You know, Hulu, just going to like more of a traditional media, like they want me to come back and watch the episode of Dave every single week, that type of a thing. So long story short, like we looked at this and, and there's actual numbers here. Like we found um, average touch points, like max average for like a B2B blog, you're looking at like 1.6 on an amazing week for your target mm -hmm. leads. For something like a Bloomberg or something like the Skim, you're looking at an average of like 4.5, right? So if you're a B2B blog and you're getting anything over three, like holy cow, we're all buying yachts, right? Just based on right. the traffic and things like that. We also found in our early like tests, a season of a show probably costs about $10,000 um, to, to do like 10,000, like that's, that's aggressive, right? That's like a show right. that's like more produced. Um, average, like cost of an ebook, about 10 grand in time and materials. Mm. And so we started putting this together and we were like, okay, well, what if we basically um, act like a media company, right? And what does that mean? So what that means is, is that at ProfitWell, we have developed seven different shows and we didn't start with seven, we started with one, but these are different shows that are either focused on an audience or focused on a problem. So mm. we have something, our first show was something called prof, or, um, Pricing Page Teardown, mm -hmm. which is almost exactly like it sounds like. We look at pricing pages, we collect a bunch of data, and then we give a bunch of advice and deconstruct that pricing page. Great. So, so, to some of you listening to this, that sounds terrible, awful, not entertaining at all. But we have tens of thousands of people watching that on a monthly basis when we're in season. And it's like, we're the pricing people based on that. Like, oh, we have a right. whole show and it's got pretty graphics and all these other things, right? One of our other shows is Boxed Out. 
it's a retention or churn focused show on mm -hmm. subscription e-commerce. So we buy different subscription e-commerce brands. We basically like walk through their retention, their cancellation flows, and we give advice and, you know, it's entertaining and on, on some levels. So that's, that's what we're trying to do is we're trying to build audience. Um, and then we have more general shows, which might be a little bit you know, closer to like this show. Um, one of them is called Protect the Hustle. This is where I personally write and interview folks and do a bunch of like thought work there. And that's more for like general execs and general founders to kind of listen to and, and watch as well. And so the basic idea is you're trying to build audience. And what I recommend to some folks to kind of get to the, the tail end of your question is start small, like start with just a show that's either focused on um, the type of person you're trying to attract or like the problem you're trying to solve. So, hey, this show's debt, like for CROs, this show's for uh, RevOps managers, this show is for designers at companies doing X and Y revenue, right? Mm -hmm. And then don't like chase YouTube numbers. This is the other biggest thing. Um, like some people get really like upset because they're like, I don't, I'm only getting like 150 to 300 downloads per episode. And what I have to remind them is like, if you had a webinar that you were getting the same 150 to 300 people like to listen to it every single week, you mm -hmm. would be like, again, like buying drinks at the bar because that would be amazing, right? Right. And so it's just like recontextualizing what success here is. It's not about going viral, but it's about building that brand and also building that connection because we have so many people that they became customers because they're like, I want you to do exactly what you do for pricing page teardown, but for us, right? And we're like, right. Great, let's talk. And then, you know, we communicate and get them through a sales process. But yeah, that's, uh, I wrote a lot in that article. It's a really long yeah. article I wrote. Um, and I actually wrote most of it um, um, a while back. But yeah, long story short, it was just um, a lot of fun, you know, fun things um, when it comes to building more inbound media versus inbound, um, um, inbound, uh, just traditional inbound marketing. Right. Where we're just focusing on blogs and, you know, we try to get an ebook and here's a forum and created content, a uh, couple of different directions. I want to take this first one's going to be with the inbound media concept where you're grabbing brand and strategy and you're becoming the expert in this area. As you begin to move that towards the sales team of actually like qualified opportunities, in doing those uh, metrics, how has that focus of an inbound media company impacted the sales, like velocity numbers, or what? What does that look like inside a profit well that you can share? Yeah. So basically, how has this impacted revenue? Is that like another yeah. way to ask that? Yeah. Yeah. Probably so, a, a better way to say it too. <laughs> yeah, yeah. No. 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 Totally. Uh, so. The problem with this too is like, and we've had this problem with inbound marketing and it's kind of ironic given like how data focused and data centric we are in terms of our content. A lot of stuff's yep. hard to measure, right? Mm -hmm. Like I can't, I can't measure like full attribution for a lot of things. Right. And, and some, and, and I think a lot of people like cringe at that, but it's like, most of us don't have full attribution on anything unless we spend right. a lot of money a lot of time figuring it out. And even then it's probably like 10% off, if not more, right? So what we kind of focus on is looking at, um, and this is what you kind of should do for inbound marketing too, is like how many touch points, like how many like pieces of content did they look at before, you know, actually a purchase as well as like attribution to a piece of content, right? Mm -hmm. So this show, this many people watched this show or these episodes before they actually ended up purchasing, right? Mm -hmm. um, or like, sometimes it's just like 
we kind of can attribute like first touch or even last touch to a show, which gets a little bit murky because, you know, cooking is terrible and all these other things. And so you kind of have to squint a little bit, but long story short, um, we, we know that like for pricing, it's like 70% of revenue is consuming Mm. content before coming and becoming a customer. Um, on the retention side, it's like growing um, more and more. It's probably about 30, 40% right now, but that product, at least the go-to-market of that product's a bit older mm-hmm. um, and, or younger, excuse me. And so, yeah, I, I mean, to give a little bit of an anecdotal piece, um, what's kind of cool is I, I do a lot of speaking or I did a lot of speaking before the pandemic. And, um, you know, I would go to a conference and I would just be like, oh, ego check, like who here has heard of ProfitWell or, or Price Intelligently, which was our former name. Um, you know, and you get a couple of hands here and there and like, like, Oh, like, how'd you hear about us? Oh, your blog's great. Right. The writing, the writing pieces of it. Um, right. After we started doing the media, I go to the conference and now I'm like, Oh, who's your profile? Like everyone in the room's hand goes up and awesome. oh, how'd you hear about us? And it's like, Oh, your videos, right. Your content. Right. And the, the reason for that, and this is an interesting like data point for a lot of folks or an anecdote point is that, um, it's just different mediums. Like mm-hmm. if you have a hundred people. 20 of them and I'm making these numbers up, like they'll read the hardcore thing. Yet a video, 60 to 70 of them will consume the content because there's a whole group of people that they're like, I'm just going to put this on in the background while I'm doing something, or I'm going to consume this in this particular way, those types of things. So yeah, yeah, it's just, it's just an interesting world, you know, when it comes to, to this type of stuff, like, um, you know, the things that you're going to learn, but yeah, I, I think it's, if, if you're not running an inbound strategy at all, like you're just doing paid media, I'm not sure you need to do this strategy. But I, I think more and more, like at least companies that were, were you know, peers of like, this is the future, um, especially mm-hmm. if you're doing anything in content. Yeah, no, I absolutely agree. I think it's really interesting that you're seeing more and more companies create these type of series where it's either highlighting uh, A, their uh, customers or like hopefully, you know, soon to be, uh, customers as like as experts in like what's happening and then also they're doing internally with their employees to promote their brands and like their own culture and using that as for recruiting so it's it's definitely interesting uh how has this impacted let's say like as you move up market going into enterprise spaces and the viewpoint of where you maybe you have to do a little bit more like outbound demand gen in that side of it um it's affecting it in the context of we are actually using these shows where we do more teardowns um, as lead gen. So what I mean by Mm -hmm. that is like, I publish a show on, let's say a CRM, right? Pricing page teardown of some CRM, right? That, that CRM, that company ends up seeing it or competitors all want to see it. Tangential companies end up wanting to see it. So it's helping in kind of that like target account list. I think in terms Mm -hmm. of inbound, it's also just really good content that people end up sending, right? And all of a sudden, if you get an email and you're like, hey, here's this like episode we did. Oh, an episode, right? It's there's still some novelty to like doing episodes and things like that. And a lot of it's just positioning, right? Like, um, oh, we have a show. It's like, yeah, it's just like episodic video content, right? Like, but oh, it's a show, right? So I think it's a lot. It also just helps like, it makes us look, bigger than we are like we are we look so much bigger than we actually are which is you know great um you know but it's also uh 
Um, it's one of those things that it's, uh, can, can, can have some unintended consequences when we're like, oh yeah, we're, you know, only 85 people and people are like, what, you know, that type of things. Yeah. Well, I mean, that, that just shows the power of the leverage of using that type of a uh, media content to get your name out there and getting people to recognize you. So I think that's anything, a great data point. If they're going, what 85, uh, no, that's awesome. Yeah. Uh, to now, uh, change the subjects. Uh, you know, really, you've been talking a lot about the different aspects of it, uh, but really, as kind of the experts within revenue automation, uh, what are some of the trends that you're seeing? Uh, where should, you know, if I'm a, a founder, revenue operator, what should be the things that I should be really focused on to help my B2B SaaS company grow? Yeah, I think um, there, there's a couple of big points. I think the first big point is for like for one, growth in revenue comes from more than just acquisition. And mm -hmm. this is now kind of a, it's, it's a concept that's been in and out of vogue for the past decade, but I think it's getting more and more prominent. People are talking about it more. And, and the, re the reason I bring this up and the reason it's so important to bring up is like, when you look at the, the pound for pound impact on revenue of the three main growth levers, acquisition, monetization, and retention, uh, monetization and retention pound for pound are four to eight X more effective than um, improving your acquisition. And, and there's a lot of reasons for this. For one, like CAC, customer acquisition cost is up 70, 75% over the past six, seven years because we don't have as many channels, or we have a lot of channels, but like we're not getting brand new channels every quarter like we once were. And all those channels are now filled with a bunch of marketing. This is why we're reinventing things like ABM, right? ABM is mm -hmm. just like, good outbound sales 10 years ago, right? right. I'm not saying it shouldn't be reinvented because, but it's now more of a function because of the constraints we have. And, and the other reason is, is because, um, you know, we, we rarely like the average amount of the average time it takes um, or the average distance between pricing changes and updates for the average SaaS company or subscription company is about three years which is hmm. insane. Like that's like keeping your email cadences the same for three years, right? Like it's worse, <laughs> right? right? Yeah. And retention, like too many people get hooked on, like, let's just get new customers. And it's like the chicken comes home to roost eventually. And it's like, you got to retain those folks. Right. And, yeah. you know, in fairness, monetization and retention are harder to get similar gains. And you're still going to spend 60% of your budget on acquisition because you got to get more customers, but you got to make sure they're, you're, you know, extracting value from them and also retaining them. So I think that's mm -hmm. the first thing is like, you got to be balanced growth. And most of us aren't balanced growth. Most of us are just, just funneling cash basically into just acquisition. And you got to spend a little bit more time in your monetization and retention. I think the other thing, the big thing is like acquisition and these other pieces are getting harder to the point that you need to know what you should automate and you need to know what you need to have a core competency on. And this is hmm. like the classic like build versus buy debate. And I think that um, for instance, like, the reason we started retain our, our retention products with credit card failures is because we discovered that the largest single bucket of lost customers, any company out there that's credit card base, it's credit card failures. It's 20 mm -hmm. to 40% of your churn, the largest single bucket, but most people don't know it. And then the people who do know it, like you're not going to become an expert in credit card failures. Like you're just not right. right? Even if you're a hundred million dollar company. Right. And so it's one of those things that's where we started and we've kind of expanded, but like, think of like, what are the things that you can like just turn on or like put on the back burner and have taken care of 
Um, I think things like demand gen are going to head that way. I think things like, um, you know, parts of your pricing are going to head that way. Your, your core should be working on the customer relationship and working on your product and, and, and mm -hmm. the bridge between those two things is value. But most of us end up, and, and this is classic, like, especially being a bootstrap company, like classic, like, no, 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 we'll just build that. We'll do that. And it's like, no, 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 no. Like, what are the things that you can truly automate? Um, because the tech is getting to the point where it's, you know, getting good. Right. No, that's really good. So in preparation for this podcast, uh, I noticed that you started your career in the department of defense. And then also, uh, you did debate in college and you kind of kind of credited both of these times as, uh, how it helps you like how to think. And then also on your like ideas around research. So, uh, first question on this is if you were to create a course, books, lectures, however you want it, on how someone should be thinking or how to think, what would it look like? That's a good question. Um, I think here, here are like the modules, I think, and I'm not yeah. going to get these in order because I'm just thinking off the cuff. Because here's the thing with like teaching someone how to think is so hard because it's just mm -hmm. so like tautological and it's just so like up its own butt in certain ways. Like, yeah. you know, cause oh, you're yeah. trying to teach people to like fix pathways and you're also trying to like, you know, it's hard to explain, right? This is what I, we, we have a big concept we talk about and it's not unique to us, but we talk about first principle thinking a lot internally. Mm -hmm. First principle thinking is just like asking five whys, like breaking down whatever the problem is or whatever the thing is to like it's 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 atomic level as much as possible in order to, you know, figure out a solution, right? And the, the example mm -hmm. a lot of people use is Elon Musk's and in, in rockets. Like, well, why are rockets so expensive? Well, it's because we throw most of them away and you know, there's a bunch of different, there's like 20 some subcontractors who end up building a rocket. Well, why is that? Right. Well, because of this and because of that. Well, why is that, right? And you eventually get down to the to, to the root and you're like, well, let's figure out a way not to throw the rocket away and let's put all the manufacturing under one roof, right? And that's how they've made rockets cheaper. So I, I think the, the first thing, the reason I brought that up is because like, it's a hard concept to learn, but once you get it, you get it, right? And so I think in this course, what I would do is I would first start off with like going deep on first principle thinking and a bunch of exercises of like first principle thinking, like just case studies, right? Case study after case study, because you learn a lot of this through repetition. Um, okay. And then what I would do, and it, it really just is retraining your pathways of like, okay, we have this problem. Okay, cool. Like, let's come up with a solution. Well, the, first we have to understand the root cause of the problem because you can't solve a problem. You can only solve a cause. And then we have to think of a bunch of different solutions and then weigh them and all that kind of stuff. I would just go through that exercise like a dozen times, probably with teams and then challenge each other and all these other things. Because I think that helps you, want, at least when we've done those exercises internally, as soon as another problem comes up, instead of going like, oh, this is the first thing I thought of, or oh, this is like the thing that I saw another company do, someone stops and like, even just for a second, like walks through the problem and then comes up with a solution. So that's the biggest thing. Um, and then the second thing that I would do is like, I would probably have a module in um, like argumentative writing or argumentative um, like speaking. And mm -hmm. that's whenever someone hears argumentative, they always think like yelling. And that's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about like how to structure a point, how to structure an argument, right? Which is kind of mm -hmm. similar to first principle thinking, but it's kind of like 
okay, I need like a thesis. And this, honestly, it's the five paragraph essay you learned in fifth grade, but everyone forgets it. And then they're really crappy writers in college and no one ever teaches them how to write. And yep. so I would basically teach people how to write a five paragraph essay again. And we've done this uh, to some, some roles. Here's a thesis. Here are my three main points of my thesis. Here's the supporting point of that point that ties that then ties back to the thesis and so on and so forth. Um, and I think that would be a, that would be like the second really big module. And then I think the third really big module, and you kind of mentioned this is just research methods, like, mm. like knowing what is good research, what is bad research, how to identify good and bad research, because I don't know. And like, you see this and it's like, you know, not, I'm not going to get political, but like you see this in like a lot of the political discussions, it's like, you know, recognizing a bad argument, recognizing bad data, recognizing like incomplete data. Um, it's like you read a headline and then you go to the actual research paper they talk about and it's two different things. Like it's two right. completely different things, right? Uh, this happened recently. Gallup posted this like um, this research they did and the, the title of their, their research was basically, it was very like associated press, like meaning like yep. just, this is, what, this is what this says. You look at, I'm not gonna name the news source because somehow that's political, but you look at the news source and the news source like, just basically said the complete opposite of what Gallup, <laughs> the people who did the research said, right? And you oh, look man. at them in, in context and you're like, what the heck's going on? And it's, you know, it's it's just people need to understand like how to like look at good information and bad information. And this mm -hmm. would probably devolve into like it, like a little bit of an analytics like discussion on like how to like read analytics and these types of things. But um yeah, those are kind of the three big modules. Um and the biggest hack I have on, on this stuff too, and, and I don't know if you listen, I, I haven't really talked about this a lot. I've talked about it in like one podcast, I think, and you might've listened to that one. Um, Google Scholar is amazing. Like it's so mm, good. Yep. Um, a lot of people, you know, you read a book and the book is more digestible, but the book like might be outdated by the time you read it. Or it's like mm -hmm. very fluffy and like, you're like, I don't know, am I supposed to take this or not? So whenever we have like these big existential, so when we were figuring out the media stuff, um, I, I did a lot of research on like papers, like actual journal right. articles that was studying media. And there's a whole like world that studies rhetoric and media. Hmm. And some of the numbers and some of the frameworks came from like some random academic at, you know, the Annenberger school at Penn, you know, basically like talking about media and he or she, and it was a group, like they never thought that they were going to have like some business person ever actually read this paper, but I read it and it started all of a sudden forming like the foundation of this framework. And you just get to like primary source, basically like some mm. smart person who's smarter than you at the thing. Um, you know, so it's funny is like, in terms of like some of our brand stuff, we studied papers on cults and papers on like insurgencies and all kinds of stuff to, to kind of like figure out those <laughs> sorry no to worries. figure out those base human emotions um, mm. that we all are affected by and it's a little mm -hmm. much right because for some things things have been figured out so you got to be careful of like how to go to, to go too deep but when we were trying to figure out like what's the next evolution of inbound like that that's that's kind of where we started is like thinking from first principles starting to form like an argument a thesis of what made sense and then going to a bunch of sources to like really make that that tighter. So yeah, yeah. I've, I've never designed a course, but maybe we should at some point. Yeah, I think you should. Uh, maybe it's something internally you can easily do and uh, have, have everyone uh, get their, uh, their profit well 
training on how to how to think and and research and and form arguments. Uh, going back to your uh, research is actually an area that I wanted to kind of dive in a little bit deeper on. Was how do you know where to start and or, or where to start, and better yet, what when do you know that you've gone too far? Like you you you, yeah. you said that part. So kind of dive a little bit deeper into the research area of of it, and you can use the inbound media as a framework to sure. discuss it. I think that. Um... What's really fascinating is we as humans, and I actually don't know if this is like a human trait inherently, but like when I talk to people, so this is more anecdotal than anything, we like straight lines. We mm. like the concept of a straight line. We like the concept of like, there's a beginning and then there's an end, right? And we like this concept of like, well, I know that I don't move up to, you know, B2 on the line until I figure out this thing and then I don't move up to C3 on the line until I figure out this thing and so on and so forth. I think the problem is, is that, you know, think of product market fit, think of like a new marketing plan, think of like all these other things. I don't know a single company where it ended up being a straight line, right? Mm -hmm. Like just in terms of success, let alone like the stuff we're talking about, like research and trying to pick an idea or trying to pick a direction. So I think that like, it, it depends first on the gravity of the decision, right? Mm -hmm. So for me, it's, hey, we're trying to figure out a, um, a direction. I need to tell a team and I need to hire folks and be like, this is our North Star, right? That's a pretty big deal. Mm -hmm. Like, that's a pretty big, that's a pretty big decision. And if, if we know, we don't need to know all the details to make that decision, but we kind of have to figure out like, what are the edges or what are like the, at least the center? And then all the other details can evolve over time, right? So we found like, oh, like, you know, we started with how do we get production really cheap and really quick? Well, we figured that out. And then it was like, oh, well, this show had this, this frame that didn't really work. We need to have this frame now and, and so on and so forth, right? All of that stuff can be figured out. But like, if you're trying to figure out a big North Star, so for example, like we're thinking of like our next product, that's a mm -hmm. big decision, right? Um, now the issue is, is then like, what are the things that it's okay to like evolve on, right? So with our media team, it's totally fine to evolve on how we produce shows. Like mm -hmm. what do the sprints look like? What is the framework of like operations look like? All of these other things. But if I'm making like a quick decision around, hey, um, what should be the ad copy we test? It's like, I don't know. We're not, we're not doing a Super Bowl ad. We're doing search ads. Like, I don't want to do any research. I don't want to talk to anybody. I just want to use some instinct because I know I'm going to get the feedback from the actual performance of the ads at some point. Right. And right. as long as I'm fastidious in like my testing framework, I'm going to be able to discover like success or failure. Right. Mm -hmm. and, and, and so I think it's gravity of the decision. It's what is the signal. And this is what a lot of people don't do. And we, we're just getting better or getting good at this now, but we weren't always good at this is like understanding, like what is the feedback cycle and what is success or failure look like? Mm -hmm. um, and then ultimately doing, trying to do that before you start so that you don't have to look back and try to rationalize like what was going on. So I, I, I think like the biggest thing is to go back to, it's not going to be linear and it's a little bit of gut feel. It's a little bit of like, okay, I feel like we keep getting the same answer when we're doing this research and we're trying to be mm -hmm. as objective as possible in this decision. If we keep getting the same answer, we probably have gone too far and that's when mm -hmm. we should stop and like go all in. 
The other thing is, is like doing some sort of like, all right, how confident are we in this decision? Well, we're not that confident, but it seems like the right decision and we're not going to find out any more information right now. That's where you are in a lot of decisions. Cool. Let's put a timeline on it. Let's put a calendar invite on the, on the calendar six months from now. We think that's the right amount of time where we'll have more data and that'll be the right decision or that'll be the time that we go. All right, let's, let's wake back up and like, take a look at things. Those hmm. little check-in points are so important. Um, I have a monthly check-in point right now. So we're, we're trying to shift our culture in, in a couple of different ways. Um, so we have a monthly check-in point where Facundo or our CPO and I literally go down the entire roster of the company and go, like, is this person fulfilling the thing or are they doing the opposite of what we want to do? Like, what does that look like? Um, and we, before we would have those conversations reactively when we had a problem. And now mm. we're like actively and proactively looking at it, but we wouldn't do that because we get caught up in the work if we didn't have the checkpoints. Right. So I think those are some things to like, think of how you're making decisions and how you're adjusting decisions and how you're like accepting or rejecting something that whole mm -hmm. process is more important than like, how do I know when to start and when to fail? Because when you have that process, um, it inevitably allows you to like fly by your seat of the pants a little bit, then decide, okay, we do have information, we don't have information, um, and kind of move like in that overall linear direction. But if you zoom in, it looks like a crazy up and down. Right. No, it makes complete sense. As you're describing it, it comes across very, uh, like very in the scientific method where you're yeah. forming a hypothesis, you're researching it, you're testing it to see if it's true or not. Um, in, instead of validating the data that you're like, oh, like, this is why this is happening um, versus uh, a couple other things. No, that's, that's really interesting. Um, you mentioned first principles thinking and one of the ways that you do it is using the five whys. Is there any other like frameworks that you have to help people to think um, what are those first principles and other ways that you do it other than the five whys? Yeah, I think... Um... I, so there's the Socratic method, right? Which is mm -hmm. kind of, yeah, the Socratic method is, is pretty important. I think it's just like asking a bunch of questions and this just, just gets into seek to understand. Um, so there's, there's like, um, there's like, they're not official, but there's like seven official types of questions with the Socratic method. I think when you use mm -hmm. the Socratic method, there's like these seven questions that keep coming up. Um, those are pretty important. I think, um, those two I find are pound for pound, just really good. Okay. Um, yet the third one that we talk about a lot internally is just this whole concept of problem cause solution, which I alluded to before. Yep. Um, and the basic idea is like, you can't solve, like we're talking about the, the thing I always bring up is like world hunger. Like, I think we all can agree that any amount of world hunger like feels bad. Right. But like, if we're just like, let's go solve world hunger, like you, the, you can't solve that problem. You can throw a bunch of stuff up against and see it didn't solve world hunger. But like the better way to think about it is what are all the causes of world hunger, right? Like let's mm -hmm. stack rank, right? And put like, okay, this is, you know, uh, poor irrigation in certain areas. That's a uh, uh, level eight caused um, aid not getting to the right areas. That's a level six cause and so on and so forth. And then you want to align your solutions to your causes. You basically want to go like, okay, well, now that we have these causes, what is the one that we feel we can control? Or what is the one we feel has the biggest impact? And then let's do a pilot of a solution on that. Then when we have good data, let's go all in, right? Like that's a, that's kind of more of a way of thinking through a problem mm -hmm. um, rather than like, I think officially first principles, but that's one we talk about a lot. And that's, um, 
interestingly enough, that's also how you structure, um, you know, a, a, a uh, uh, an argument or argumentative paper in some ways. It's like, yeah. let's analyze the problem and the impact. Let's look at the root causes and then let's propose the solutions for those causes. So um, yeah, that's that's another one we talk about. That's good. No, uh, very, very interesting. Uh, so coming down to our last two questions, uh, what habits or frameworks have helped you the most professionally? Um, I think... So the habit that's been really good, but I'm in a rut with it right now, um, is I, I, as soon as I started waking up very early, so typically 4, 4.30 in the morning, that was the thing that unlocked a lot of the other things for me. And I, and mm -hmm. I am not a morning person. I, I naturally am not a morning person. I, I'm more of a I don't know if I'm officially like medically a night owl or anything like that, but the idea right. of like getting up in the morning is, is bad. Cause normally like I don't have a set bedtime or I try not to, or I used to not try to enforce one. Um, for the past few years, I started to become like a four four thirty guy in the past. Like I just started traveling again after not traveling um, throughout the pandemic stuff. And then all of a sudden mm -hmm. like my body was like, what's going on. And then my <laughs> get all over the place. Yeah. Um, so I think that was a big one. And, and, the reason it was powerful for me is because I found I am at my happiest and my willpower is better when I kind of am not like waking up and like rushing to the meeting or the office. You know, if you wake mm -hmm. up an hour before, it's like, well, I got to shower, I got to do this. And then all of a sudden it's like, there's no like breathing room. I like a little bit of breathing room where I like to work on some stuff before I like head into the first like meeting or something of the day so that yeah. was a big one and the, the, the kind of the, the brother or sister of that one was also putting most of like my meetings in the afternoon mm. um so like everything in the morning is is open and in the the larger lesson is like taking control of your schedule i think early days i i don't know if i really could take control of my schedule because everything's just a reaction um in the early days but right um, i probably should have um but that's the big habit i think it was ha habit or what was the other habit or uh, habit and framework um framework we talked a lot about other frameworks already all those have been really yeah. helpful um oh the one other habit i think this was a really good one i was talking to this with heaton yesterday um we what i did is it's more of a it's a habit is we most of us will have a significant other or do have a significant other um whether it's a spouse or, you know, kids or something, right. You have all these loved ones, right. Mm -hmm. Their expectation is probably different than your expectation, right? Like I, I'm a big, mm -hmm. like a big, like my job is the biggest part of my identity. Right. So I work a lot. Mm -hmm. I like to work all these other things. Um, and you know, Jenny's not really like that, right. Jenny's a little bit different. And so mm -hmm. one of the biggest things that we I figured out, and this is when we moved, is we started doing like 6 p.m. dinners, which I know there's a lot of studies, of course this is useful, but for us it was, okay, like that's the anchor point for, for her of like, we're gonna sit down and it's not always every night, but most nights we're gonna sit down at 6 p.m. Um, it, no phones, no, and we're, we actually have a dining room now because we moved to a state where Congrats. Know, something is not astronomically expensive. We were in Boston and now we're in Salt Lake City. Um, oh, okay. And basically, um, you know, it might be 10 minutes, might be 15 minutes, might not be anything, but it's at least like that anchor point. And as soon as we started doing that, it was, it was really, really good. Um, and some other folks who have instituted it that I've told about it, they've started like see the effect as well, because mm -hmm. honestly, if you're under 40, like you 
you might not have had the like, oh, we sit down every night at dinner thing. And then you had college right. where you're definitely not doing it. In your 20s, you're not doing it as much now. Yeah. So um, yeah, it was just a good, good anchor for us, which, which really helped like the relationship, but also helped the communication and avoided the like resentment conversations where it's like, you know, yeah, I'm not a priority. Yeah. It's a little more, yeah. a little more personal, but that's, that's, that's kind of, no, that's good. Yeah, no, it's, uh, it's all one, one thing. It's, uh, that's always really good to understand both the, uh, outside of the professional world. Uh, great tip. Uh, last question is what's a message you want to leave with the listener it can be about anything it could be any phrase. What would that yeah. be? Um, we talked about a lot. I think, uh, the, the, the big thing is, uh, don't be too hard on yourself. I think that's a big one. You're already going to be like, if you're listening to something like this, you're an exec or you're leading something or a founder, like you're, you're already going to be hard on yourself. And so you need someone to be like, Hey, it's a marathon, not a sprint. Cause you know, there's no amount of something I'm going to tell you that you're not actually going to be hard on yourself. We just want to loosen that up a little bit. So that's, that's the big thing I would leave with folks. Perfect. Patrick, thank you so much. This has been a great conversation. Totally, man. Appreciate it.